Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It's been been a week, but I'm hanging in there. How about you? So I'm I'm hanging in as well. It's been a week. I don't think either of us have had like great weeks, but we can talk about that in a minute. Um, One of our runners had an incredible week. We haven't had the opportunity to coach that many runners for marathons for obvious reasons, but... For an actual Um, person marathon. Yes. I know every time I do, in the few times I've done race prep for our runners in like the last eight months, it feels very weird to do race prep because exactly a lot of races. Yeah. Yeah. So in fact, um, I was super excited to do race prep for our runner, Pete, who is um, tomorrow racing out Nevada. Um, So hopefully we'll have some great updates about that next week. But this week, um, Kathy Grams, one of our clients, uh, had an amazing PR in Pennsylvania. So Lisa, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Kathy is great. She had an amazing race. And I think she's such a great example of focus and patience um, and trusting training. So Kathy came to us right before the pandemic started, like in February. And she came to us having experienced a lot of injuries and she self, she admitted um, that she recognized herself that a lot of her injuries she thought were from doing too much, too soon, too fast, like just going too hard. And we looked at a lot of her runs and her easy runs, which were way too fast. And like we find with a lot of our runners and especially, I think a lot of our runners period, but especially our runners who are, are who are talented and who are fast and who are competitive. Um, the tendency a lot is to run too fast on their, on most of their mileage. So, uh, so we had originally targeted, uh, some earlier spring races, like the broad street 10 mile run. And her ultimate goal was the Amsterdam marathon, which was so exciting for her to target Amsterdam this year, which was in the fall. And pretty early on in our training, we realized that none of those races were going to be to be happening. We held on to hope that Amsterdam would happen and then clearly saw that there was going to be no international travel, even if Amsterdam happened. And then Amsterdam was canceled as well. So, uh, you know, Kathy was one of our runners who still wanted to continue training for a marathon and didn't really want to give up that target of, of goal for a marathon. And so we really looked around and tried to find a, a target for her, a goal for her that we thought might take place. So uh, it, a few months ago, it looked like the Harrisburg Marathon was taking some some steps so that they would be able to uh, operate under the parameters set by their locality, which meant dividing the race into two days, having staggered corral starts. Uh, there was a special corral for elites, which was a qualification of um, 
expected finish time of, or a qualifying finish time actually had to provide of three hours or under for men and 3.30 or under for women. And she fell into that category for women um, that she had an expected finish time of under 3.30. And um, so we decided to go ahead and and target that with the recognition that anything could happen. But again, reassured that a lot of um, precautions and and modifications had been put into place to to make sure this had the best chance of going off. So about six weeks before the marathon, she experienced some hamstring pain, and we, in an abundance of caution, got her into Rachel Miller and Pro Action Physical Therapy. And she went in and uh, working hand in hand, this was like a perfect example of teamwork and why we love working with Rachel in ProAction. Um, Rachel took a look at her, told us what she thought was going on and what she thought in terms of her training. And we pulled back on, on the mileage. We replaced some with some cross training. And that took a lot of patience and trust on Kathy's behalf. Kathy likes to get in her workouts. She was six weeks out from a marathon. She was worried that not getting in mileage or speed work was going to affect her, her preparation for in her, you know, her ability to run a strong marathon. And we just had to reassure her that, look, you've been training for seven months now for this. Your training is on point. You are ready. And now the important focus is to get you to the start line healthy because you're no good in a marathon, no matter what your fitness, if you can't run 26 point, all 26.2 miles, if you have some injury or you're behind the eight ball going into it. So Kathy trusted us, which we really appreciate. And she was very good and disciplined about taking um, some days off about combining some, we, we combined some cross training with running so that we could get in some running mileage, but we split it between an elliptical, which got very boring for her, but kept her cardiovascular condition up. And we split it between running and elliptical. A couple of the longer runs we split between morning and evening. So she wasn't running a huge chunk of mileage and, and fatiguing her muscles, especially that hamstring all at once. So we had to get creative. And again, she had had to trust it. And it was hard for her to look around at others training for um, fall races and hear about their training and their see their on social media, see what their training runs were because hers wasn't exactly um, the same as theirs. And she got nervous about that. What do you, what do you mean by that? Like, it was hard for her to see, like, you know, comparison trap that that we fall into that you know you see a runner on maybe Instagram or on Facebook and they post their stats and you think oh I haven't hit those paces yet or I didn't do a workout like that yet and think that was you know that was challenging for her and again we kept saying just trust your training you are you're ready for this and we have to get you there healthy and uh, we gave her a race plan we knew that um she was capable of finishing in sub 310 which was what was her goal and that would be a PR for her and uh, we felt confident that, you know, she went back to Rachel for a follow-up. Rachel said she looked so much better and she followed Rachel's directions on exercises to do. And she followed our directions on resting and cross-training. And Rachel was really happy with what she looked like when she went back. So with that um, confidence, we put together a, a pacing plan for a sub 310, but told Kathy that it was really important to follow that pacing plan. And it's hard for um, a, a competitive runner, like, you know, all of us are type A marathon or type A runners that want to um, overachieve. And, um, and for somebody who's going for a PR, it's hard to hold back in those early miles. And she did. She stuck to her pacing plan. And she has had one of the most even races that I've seen um, 
she had a little fatigue in the last two miles, I think, but really didn't lose too much time. And she finished in 309 and change and, and, and some change. So exactly in her target, she was the first place woman on Saturday. So again, the race was divided into Saturday and Sunday to spread out runners. And it was, um, Interesting, they didn't post the elite results from Saturday before the Sunday race to give everyone an equal, um, kind of equal footing so that the Sunday people, the Sunday runners wouldn't have the advantage of knowing what the winning times were from, from Saturday. So they, we didn't know the final results until Sunday's results were posted. And she ended up taking second woman, second elite woman overall at age 47. I would say that the other two women in the top three were under 40. So Kathy is representing the masters faster as a master and just had a really, really strong race. And um, again, just a great example of patience and uh, trusting her training. Uh, it was really interesting race prep because we talked a lot about how it's not going to feel like a normal race. She was running. It was a time trial start and she would not be running in a big group of a pack of people or have really a lot of, you know, that adrenaline that we do when we run in a bigger pack or when we have people cheering us on on the sidelines. Um, and the course was two loops, so um, relatively flat, but the one part of the loop did go through gravel, a gravel area, which we knew might be an issue. And we talked about that in the race prep. And she did say that on the second loop, especially when, you know, you're not as efficient when you're running on gravel, you're not getting that push off. That's a solid push off off of solid ground. You're kind of sinking in and, and sliding a little bit as you push off the ground and the gravel. So that takes more energy. And when you're in mile 24, that extra energy can feel like, you know, can feel like a lot of extra energy. So that she said was, was a little bit of a challenge, um, but she really was mentally strong in this race too. And we've worked on that through training, but the mental strength to be able to keep that pace and hold that motivation when you're not in a big, you know, a, big race with a lot of adrenaline surging and she just she did great and she came home and she's already she has what we call the post marathon mania of okay what can I do next and I want another one and I I like what can I sign up for next and we said like take a step back <laughs> let's recover and again she's been very patient and very good and with her recovery this week but we're looking forward to what she can target for for the spring after some much deserved recovery but it was um a really, I, I said it, it was actually um, uh, not to get political, but on it was Saturday that she ran the race, which is when we got the news of the, you know, when the election was called. And it was a beautiful day here in in our area, and um, I felt like we got a lot of good news on on Saturday. I said it was kind of the highlight of my 2020, and we really haven't had anything um, with our runners in 2020. I mean. Uh, maybe earlier in January, I can't even remember back that far, but we haven't been able to really celebrate um, race finishes for our runners this year. And to be able to celebrate her finish on Saturday felt, Saturday was a great day. Saturday was the best day of 2020 that I can remember in the, in the distant, in the, in the, in the near future, in the near past, sorry. I, I would actually challenge that and say that probably another best day of 2020 was when you got to run the not sob that you talked about oh, yeah. a few months ago. <laughs> with our runners and witness those finishes too. Um, I think Thank that you for reminding me, I, you know, you're welcome. Also, yes. That was a very good day too. So <laughs> I could think of two really good days of 2020. That's great. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure. Um, I think there's a couple of takeaways before we move on that, um, about Kathy's story that you shared. I think the first one is that, um, while it's very important to enjoy the process in training, 
And, and it's very important to take each workout one bite at a time. It's also very important to not um, look at your training in a vacuum and decide how your race will turn out based solely on your workouts. Because a lot of elite runners, some of the best runners in the country, they post, they're very public. They post their workouts on Strava and you'll see that a lot of times they bailed or they didn't hit the paces that they thought they should. And when we prescribe projected paces or we give workouts, it's not a test every time where we expect our runners to execute it perfectly. Sometimes you're in a range. Sometimes you're tired. There's lots of factors. But if you have a failed workout, that's actually a good thing because it means that you're challenging yourself in your training, that you understand what you need to work out. And it also means that on race day, you've already practiced that feeling of, oh gosh, oh gosh, this isn't working. This isn't working. And you've practiced how to get yourself out of that funk. And that is a skill everybody needs on race day. So the second takeaway is Kathy, like so many of us toward the end of her marathon started struggling. She hit some gravel. She was feeling really, really fatigued. She could have taken energy from that injury that she sustained in her hamstring six weeks earlier and said, up, oh, here we go. Here's what's happening. But instead she kept going and stayed positive. So that's the second takeaway. The third takeaway is that if you have something going on in your training, make sure you take care of it. Don't push through it because stopping running during your training, even at a critical point, and in her case, it was six weeks before the marathon, which is a critical point, and getting it taken care of in cross-training is so much better than, as you pointed out, getting to the start line, potentially unhealthy, and not being able to finish the race at all. Yep. So anyway, um, moving on from actual races to virtual races, uh, you and I were trying to come up with something that we could do on Thanksgiving day for our community and for all of our listeners. And we came up with something we shared on our social media today, and we are asking our listeners to participate. And it's really easy. Um, most of you out there listening, I'm sure do Turkey trots on Thanksgiving or around Thanksgiving. It's a rite of passage. It's part of tradition. We love doing them. We're sad. They aren't happening this year. So as an alternative, we are asking everyone who is intending on running on Thanksgiving morning to get or Thanksgiving day, consider that your turkey trot. Do a run, take a photo, and tag us. Share it on social media. Share it directly on our Instagram or Facebook pages or share it on your own and tag us. And every photo you share, we are going to commit to donating $5 to MANA up to $200. So um, we want to do something for our community. Um, there are a lot of people right now that are having a hard time putting food on the table. So we want to give to our food bank and you can help us do that. And you can still feel part of a community, uh, which we all need so desperately right now by running on Thanksgiving day with us. So we hope you'll join us and spread the word to your friends and family who also enjoy trotting on Thanksgiving day. Speaking of community, we want to just talk a little bit. Oh get, yeah, go ahead. Get, get your family to do it with you. If you know, you typically do something, you know, with you, obviously with our families that are in our homes, like get your family out to do it. Like give your family a new tradition to, to look forward to and, and get outside, get that fresh air. And, um, and, and like you said, do something good at the same time. So give people a purpose. For sure. So speaking of community, we had an awesome speaker last night. Um, 
part of our speed and strength group virtual program, we bring on speakers every week, or um, sometimes we're the speakers and we do a weekly group Zoom call. And our speaker last night was our friend and RFF runner who is also a psychologist, Toba Rubin. And Toba spoke to our group and so much of what she said resonated with both of us and we know with so many of our members. And basically what the talk was about was about how to channel your stress into positivity. Um, stress can be a, a fear-based. It can be very negative. It can wreak havoc on your body. We all know this. We've been dealing with all kinds of different types of stress over the last eight months and particularly this month with the um, both the, the marrying of an election and COVID continuing, stress was at an all-time high. So Toba talked about some strategies that we can all use to make sure that our stress is actually creating a positive impact on us rather than negative. So um, I'm, I just want to bring up one point, and at least I want you to share some that you took away from, from last night. But one of the things that I took away from last night that she um, reiterated a few times that is really, really important for everyone to recognize, particularly as we hit the winter months, is movement, how important movement is in whatever shape or form that is. While we are all runners and most most of you listening are runners, I'm sure as well, um, if you don't feel like running, but you feel the need to move, then do something else. But get outside, even when it's cold this winter, when the sun is shining, get outside, get moving. It does work. It is important. It's important for elevating your mood. But even when you don't feel like moving, forcing yourself to take those first steps, often studies have shown that that action will then trigger mood. So that was one takeaway that we really want to emphasize. Um, Lisa, what did, what did you take away from it? I, um, I like that she talked about um, accepting and sitting with difficult feelings because we're all having these emotions and um, you know, some negativity, some, you know, some we're discouraged, we're scared, we've got these feelings. And she talked about how we, you know, may have the tendency to be like, well, I can't feel like that because then I'm going to bog myself down in feeling negative and I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to spiral downward. Um, but she talked about, it's okay to sit with those feelings for a little while, accept them. And that by doing that, we lessen their impact on our lives. So again, we go back to what we talked about months and months ago was it's okay to not be okay for a little while, like sit with that, accept it, recognize it, and then get out and move <laughs> to help you get, you know, to get to help you pass that. And not only get out and move, but um, cultivate relationships. So having connections and, and that for us is something that is really important. And for me, our speed and strength program and every Wednesday when we get together and we have our speed and strength runners and our virtual coaching runners come together on a call and just seeing that each other and having some conversation before and after, if we have a speaker or we're talking, I always get off of those feeling like I, I had my connect, you know, my my connection moment, my my I had my relationship fill that I got for that evening because we're really missing that and we don't realize how much we miss that until we have those connections. Um, so even though it has to be virtual in some instances now. Uh, you know, cultivating those relationships, not forgetting that that's really an important part. It's easy to forget now because we don't get the opportunities as much. We're not going out to dinners with friends and we're not having big parties and we're not, you know, the holidays are going to be really um, challenging, I think. So um, cultivating 
finding ways to cultivate those relationships in, in any way that you can, I think was a, a big takeaway. Yeah, that was a huge takeaway. I, I can hear Cooper you. Agrees, right, Cooper? Yeah. I mean, seriously, my community is basically my dog and me all day while the kids are locked in their rooms flirting. Darren's in, Darren's in the office. And so it's just, I, I completely agree. When I have a chance to um, chat with any of our runners, um, our speed and strength runners, our virtual coaching clients, many of whom have been getting on the calls as well, which brings us such joy. And um, seeing friends in person, um, whether through walks or um, I've been a big fan of sitting outside, you know, having picnics, whatever it is that allows you to see people outside, especially now. Um, I, I agree with with Tova's tips about community. This is nothing new. We know this already. We've been managing this shit for how long? But it's just a good reminder because sometimes I think we're now almost used to it. So we kind of forget that there are some simple things that we can do for each other to take care of ourselves. Right. And that's a good segue into our speaker today, who is a, a friend of ours and a local race director who's working really hard to give us those opportunities to come together as a community and move so that we can get past some of these difficult times. And um, it, it, Ken Racine is the founder of Racine Multisport. And we've done a lot of his races over the years, and we've always been impressed with how organized and how, how uh, you know, how well his races are run. And uh, now in the times of COVID, he was one of the first race directors to come back with a format for a race that worked within the constraints of local authorities, safety measures, and figured out how can we do this so that we can be together and find that sense of community and accomplishment and um, you know, and and be outside and get that activity and that movement and um, do it safely. And he is uh, we had a great conversation with him today about how that evolved and how he's had to adapt and his his perspective on it, which I think is really a positive perspective. It's not a woe is me. Why did this happen to us in our industry? And this sucks. But no, let's figure out. How do we get the momentum moving again in a way that allows us to um, to have this gift that we call of, of racing and getting together and celebrating um, accomplishments and goals? Well said. I just want to give uh, listeners a frame of reference. So Ken, Ken is um, the owner of Racing Multisport, and most, if not all, of his races are in Maryland. Well, no, a lot are in actually Pennsylvania. Okay, Pennsylvania. Okay. He has, he has one coming up that's in Virginia as well. So um, okay. throughout the kind of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia uh, Got it. area. And so what we personally have found is it's a, where we live in Maryland. Basically, it's a lot easier to drive to Pennsylvania to get races right now. There's just nothing really in our, in our D.C. area at all. Or outside Very of Montgomery little, County, I would say. Right. Um, Ken is a little bit more Hagerstown, which is north of us, and they have a little bit more. Like even right now, and Ken and I talk about this a little bit. Um, Montgomery County, Maryland, we're back to uh, gathering restrictions, even outdoors of 25. Uh, that is not the case right now in the rest of Maryland. It's still 250. So races that are limited to 250 people can still take place outside of Montgomery County right now. But there are very few compared to 
generally um, Pennsylvania. So one thing that's very interesting and something that um, Ken will talk about more is that a lot of it is dependent on who the leadership is with respect to their familiarity with running. So it's not just who the leadership is in terms of their political affiliation or their familiarity with science. It's truly like people, leaders who are familiar with races and understand that they can be done safely and want to experience them themselves are more adept to allowing races to happen in those states and areas than leaders who aren't. So it's yet another factor to consider when signing up for that race in the spring and saying, I hope it's not canceled. Um, Ken's going to provide some information about how to sort of dissect a race and see um, the possibility of it being canceled and what factors to look at before signing up. Um, So what we're telling all of our runners to do who are looking at spring races is to sign up for a few and hedge your bets. Um, So that is what we're advising, but we are hopeful that this interview with Ken will um, shed some light on what's happening in the racing industry and hopefully prompt some race directors out there who might be listening to go for it. Uh, because it can be done safely. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, kind of the t- my takeaway from my conversation with Ken is that if we want to move forward, we've got to get some momentum. And that means race directors who are stepping up and figuring out how to make this work safely and within the constraints of the local permitting authorities and the, the information that we get and the science and the guidance that we get. Um, and not only that, but athletes who are willing to then get up and support those races and trust that the race directors are putting on a you know safe and well-organized event. And if we can get that momentum going again, we will uh, you know, make our way, pro- progress towards getting back to some sense of normalcy. And what I love, you'll hear Ken talk about what I love is that Ken has all of the faith in the world that we will get back to our normal, normally scheduled race program eventually, piece by piece, that we will get back to it. And that gave me a lot of hope. And, you know, I always go back to um, Dave McGilvery and, um, you know, we talked to Dave a couple of times on our podcast, uh, but I always kind of go back to what what he said. And, um, you know, we, we always need hope. We always need to hold on to that hope. And not only that, but, and I talked to Ken about this and I close with Ken about this. So I don't want to, um, you know, give it away, but uh, I always love that Dave McGilvery is, refers to himself, not just as a race director, but that somebody who's raising the level of self-confidence and self-esteem of people all across America. And um, Ken is somebody who's doing that too. And you'll hear his story about how he got into racing and how he got into race directing. And it's really in line with Um, our race directors are are doing more than just putting on races Mm -hmm. and the logistics of races. They're really lifting our self-confidence and self-esteem and uh, we we can get back to that. Great. Well, we look forward to hearing from Ken. And uh, before we close out, I just, I want to give a shout out to um, my oldest friend, um, someone I've known since I was three years old, uh, my best friend, Amy Miracle, her father, Dean Baldwin passed away um, of complications of COVID uh, this week. And I want to give a shout out to Amy and just um, send my love. And also just to share quickly uh, that her dad, who was a professor of agricultural economics at Ohio State University, was a loved, well-loved, well-respected man in the community where I grew up. And uh, what everyone has always talked about with Dean, uh, in spite of all of his accolades, 
was not his accolades, but it was his character and uh, how kind he was to his students. His door was always open, how he treated others with respect and how he always made students recognize that they all have the possibility of reaching their fullest potential no matter where they came from. So I just wanted to share a little bit and uh, as a reminder to all of us that uh, how we treat each other and how we act is what people remember us. It's not our accomplishments. So sending so much love to her and to anyone out there who's struggling. Uh, we feel you and we're here for you. And uh, we are grateful for you listening to us babble week after week. So Lisa, I hope that you have a great week moving forward. And uh, thank you so much for interviewing Ken today on behalf of both of us. No problem. Have a great week and weekend, Julie. You too. Bye. Bye. Are you finding yourself wearing your running shoes even when you're not running? Maybe you need a replacement pair sooner than you think. If so, definitely check out RJ Sports in Maryland. RJ Sports is located in Rockville and Bethesda, and they are a terrific locally owned running store with personalized attention to ensure that you have the right shoe for your foot and your gait. They know what they're doing. And if you live out of town, you can still call RJ Sports or check out their website, rnjsports.com, to find the right shoe for you. If you have any questions, simply call the store and they will be happy to help you. If you make a purchase of over $100 or more, mention the Run Farther and Faster podcast, and RJ Sports will throw in a free pair of Vallega socks. Check out RJ Sports. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring our podcast today. Ken Racine, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. It's great to have you on. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, we asked you to come on because um, you know this, but I've done your races for many, many years and have always um, respected and really enjoyed your races because of how organized they are and how um, committed you are to putting on really quality races that are connected to the community and really just are, are an all around great experience from, from registration through the very end of the event, they're just an all-around great experience. So I've always enjoyed your your events. Um, but as COVID has hit and we've started to get back to racing just a little bit, your your races were actually some of the first to come back, um, which is notable in our area, especially in Maryland. We've had a lot of restrictions and uh, it's been really difficult to get back to racing. But your races have been some of the first to come back. And I know you did one earlier this season, but I got to come to I think it was probably the second race was the Hagerstown duathlon and I was so impressed I told you when I left of how safe it felt how well organized it was and all of the protocols and procedures that you put into place and I was just so so impressed so we wanted to bring you on today to kind of just talk through this whole experience that we've had and especially as athletes and runners and triathletes and swimmers and cyclists from the perspective of you know what's next and what do what do we as athletes um, how how can we plan appropriately and and set our expectations appropriately moving forward into 2021 and how can we support organizations like yours and you know we know this is your bread and butter and and it's really uh, you know been been turned 360 uh, or 180 I guess a 180 where you know I think all we always took for granted that 
races would always be able to take place. Nothing was going to get in the way of, of racing. And, and here we are, and we're in kind of a whole whole new world. So I thought we'd just start for our listeners who don't know you and um, haven't been able to race with you. Kind of tell us about how you got into cycling and triathlon and what led you into um, into racing multi-sport. Yeah, well, yeah. thank you for the flattering comments uh, about our races. We have a really strong team and every one of us is passionate about making sure that the experience that our participants have is top notch. Uh, so we work very hard at that. I appreciate you recognizing that and all the loyalty you've shown us. And yeah, it's, it's a crazy year. Um, it's probably good for me to look back on how it all got started uh, because I've been so focused on all of the unknown. And I, I think, you know, going back to the roots of how we got started reminds all of us why we do what we do. And I'm not weary at all. Um, I'm really optimistic about where we're gonna be in you know, the next year. Uh, and I'm really excited about what we've, what we've been able to accomplish with COVID and how to navigate. So we'll dive all into that. But my beginning, really, I would have to attribute it to cycling. It was back when I was still in high school. Um, of all things, the sport of cycling really latched on to me. And for several years, I competed. I was never really a strong cyclist, but I enjoyed it a whole lot. And the sport of triathlon back then in the 80s um, was really coming on strong and was very different. My sister um, invited me to see her compete in Baltimore. It was called the Baltimore Bud Light Triathlon. And they had a little series going on. It was supported by Bud Light. And um, I came out not expecting a whole lot. And I literally was just taken back by this sport. And, you know, I, I don't think I ever cried um, for my sister until that day. When she crossed the finish line, for some reason, I welled up and, and it was just an emotion that made me want to know what that felt like. And I was so proud of her. And, you know, she was, I think, gosh, maybe 17. I was almost 20. Somewhere around that were our ages. And, um, at that moment, I knew I needed to feel that moment. I needed to figure out how to do a triathlon. And that's how I got started into the sport. And I dove in um, full force. I, I learned how to swim in a matter of three months. I was swimming a mile. And, and this is a guy that couldn't swim the length of the pool without drowning. I remember that first day. It was crazy how out of shape I felt, even though I was great on the, on the bike. Um, I just couldn't get to the other side of the pool without feeling like I was done. And then three months later, I'm swimming the mile that I wanted for the Olympic distance. And running came even easier, um, I guess, because of my cycling condition. And um, within a matter of three months, I was running a 10K distance. And none of that was pretty. And none of it was um, great performance. But over the course of the next couple of years, by the time I was 23, I was on the podium in my age group. I was doing really well. Um, and so that's how I got started in triathlon. An injury took me out. Um, I was just dabbling in college and, and the sport got me focused and I decided, let me get my degree in business and get serious. So um, I got out of the sport and got my degree. Um, shortly after that, 
met my wife, re-met her. We went to high school together and uh, we re-met after college and, you know, a relationship started and then family was the focus and career. All of this pulled me away from triathlon. And then a good friend of mine who is still a, one of my best friends, Mark, um, I'm 38 now living in Maryland. And he says to me that he and his wife, Keely, are going to do this little triathlon. And they invited me to do it. I said, well, when is it? And he said, in three weeks. <laughs> so I had given up triathlon at age 23. I had started riding again at age 35. So here I am once again, just a cyclist. And someone is asking me to get back in the triathlon and do this race in three weeks. So I laughed at him and, you know, hadn't run or swam that in that long, of, you know, that duration of time. And uh, woke up the next morning with that same feeling of, man, I have to do this. I, let, me, let me see if I can put together a three-week three plan. And this time, I only had to get ready for a, a 5K run, and I think it was a 500 or 400-meter uh, pool swim. So I got ready in three weeks, and when I crossed the line, once again, just tears and emotion. Um, and so that brought me back to the sport at age, I guess I was 39. I was 39. And um, we went to the awards ceremony of that little race. Um, and everyone around us who came from my um, county, from my area, they said, we need a race in this area, which is the Hagerstown area, Maryland. And uh, I only had to hear it a couple of times in 10 minutes to remember that I had had a dream of organizing events. And I had tucked it away for years and it all just came flooding back. So I said to everyone uh, right there at the awards ceremony, if I put it together, I need about five of you to join me. And Lisa, that's how this whole thing called Racing Multisports uh, kicked off. We just wanted to do a race in Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, which is still going on called the Hagerstown Sprint Triathlon. And there was about I think a team of seven of us that launched it. I was the financial backer and I even told them in the very beginning, if this goes well, I'll just keep doing it and, you know, form a business around it. And there was almost zero pressure. We just wanted to do it. We sold out uh, pretty quickly when we opened up registration, the race was, it went well, but I tell you what, it was so low budget. We look at pictures now and it, we just laughed. Um, but it was our start. And I decided every year after that, I would add on and see what would happen. But I, I, I failed to mention that I was building a career that whole time. So when I came out of college, I got into a career in distribution and logistics and worked for four different companies in a 23-year 20 20 span. Um, and so in the end, when I was building racing multi-sports, it really was like a hobby at first. And next thing you know, it started to grow to the point where after eight years, I had to make the choice, either stay with a career that was doing, doing us very well. It was a, um, I was the director of warehousing for a company called Dot Foods in the end. Um, so I had done pretty well in that career and I had a choice. Do I want to go on my own or do I want to keep um, trying to spin both, which was not working. They were both full time at that point. So I, I made the leap. That was about six years ago. And so we've been full-time in racing multi-sports since. And the day that we 
I took that leap, uh, we were rewarded with just a lot of business that was on the cusp of being available to us. And it was kind of the validation that we needed that doing this full time was the right way to go. So we're 13 years, 2020 is our 13th year with racing multi-sports and the last six of them have been me full-time uh, running that, that business. Wow. That's so I think that's, that's a good <laughs> kind of rundown of how I got in and where it took me to the present day. So yeah, now that I know you did distribution and logistics, now I understand why your races are so well organized and run so smoothly that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I tell you, you're right about that. Um, it is kind of my wheelhouse. And I knew that going into college and I knew that, you know, in the jobs that I was taking uh, coming out of college, I never knew that it was what you needed as a race director. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah, it really plays to my strength. And I'm one of, I think, a few race directors, um, race organizers that feel comfortable in almost every aspect of what we have to do. And I, I don't want to make that sound like I'm bragging. It's just, you know, we all have our niche and, and I found mine and it, it fits so well with, with race directing. Yeah. So I enjoy it very much. Yeah. So before we get to talking about our current situation in COVID, what, what prior to COVID was your biggest challenge as a race director? And you also, you don't only put on your own races, but you also have clients that you, um, put on races for what? What was your biggest challenge pre-COVID in, in putting on races? You know, so I think it's important. You just mentioned something that the listeners probably need to understand. You know, who are we? Who's racing multi-sports? In a nutshell, we do two things. We put on our own branded races, and they range from triathlon to pure swimming and pure running. Um, so those branded races under our, our name, Racing Multisports, we have 22 events now. And early on, when we started to acquire timing equipment and we knew what we were doing, we opened ourselves up to a client base. And so the other part of Racing Multisports, some people call it racing timing, we offer clients full service. And so we can come out and do as little as throwing some timing equipment down on the ground and capturing you know, the results for your race all the way up to we can produce a triathlon under your brand and it's all of our equipment, know-how and staff. So we can do a turnkey approach and anywhere in between. Um, and so getting back to your question on what are the challenges, you know, we have, we're approaching a hundred clients annually uh, along with our 22 races. So the challenge is always having the staff to handle that. And I, I would say that we've done very, very well with that. Um, there are times where we get stretched and we'll have as many as six races on a weekend. So you think about a Saturday and a Sunday, um, that can be, we, we had five races on a Saturday before and then a couple more on a Sunday. So I guess maybe seven was our largest weekend. And so that's just a continual challenge. The logistics of that is immense and having the staff to be able to pull that off is really important. And so we are always looking to add people to our team. This is pre-COVID. Uh, so we've done a lot of 
interviews in, you know, 2018, 2019, um, we weren't able to bring everyone on that we were able to interview. And it's nice to see that a lot of people want to be a part of this in, on the, in the back end, you know, behind the scenes and waking up at three o'clock in the morning in rain and whatever the conditions are to get ready for hundreds, if not thousands of athletes. Uh, not everyone wants to do that, but we seem to really attract a lot of quality people. And so that will always be the challenge when you're in a growth mode like we had been prior to COVID. Yeah, I've always impressed you with how many volunteers you get to come out, not just, you know, your paid staff that you have, but you always, your events always, and I think that's a reflection of your uh, commitment and involvement to the community and the respect that the community has for you is that you always, you know, you always have a great staff of volunteers that come out to the event. So um, I, I, and I would imagine as we get to discussions about what it looks like now that that's, you know, probably a challenge for a lot of race directors now is, 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 you know, finding the volunteers that are willing, like you said, to get up at three o'clock in the morning and do the work that needs to be done, but also in the, in the environment that we have now. So let's transition a little bit to COVID and kind of go back to, to March, or maybe, I don't know if it was February for you, but when did you start to get the sense, and you have events that are in March or in April, you know, I was supposed to do the Hagerstown duathlon in April. And, um, you know, I, I don't even think I gave it a second thought until maybe March that maybe it wouldn't happen. But when did you start to um, realize that that things were going to change on the schedule? And what did that look like back in, in February or March? Yeah, so I remember it very clearly. I was out west skiing uh, with some friends. And as we were going through the airports, we, we understood COVID. Um, but I could only account for literally only six people wearing a mask. Uh, can you imagine that? I mean, where we are right now. And so they looked weird. They looked like the people who were uncomfortable, um, in a sea of people that were acting normal. Um, so there was no clue at that moment in the airport coming back from Colorado that we were heading into a pandemic. Um, but we had a lot of discussion. So um, on that trip, it was starting to become more and more a discussion on what's taking place and the threat was definitely building. So I didn't really think of impact on races um, that were about to happen a couple weeks later at that moment. I really didn't, didn't think that it was going to be that interruptive. And the bomb really went off. Um, I think it was, it was less than 48 hours from the gun going off on St. Patrick's Day Saturday. Yeah. We had three races, all of which had sold a tremendous amount of uh, participation compared to previous years. So it was, it was you know, built to be a really good opening weekend for us, three races. And I was on the phone with one of those clients. And we were, you know, when you're 48 hours in or out, rather, there's a lot to talk about. And we're making sure everything is buttoned down and, and synced up. I'm on the call. And this is um, a race in Westminster, Maryland. And all of a sudden, the mayor is on the phone in the background in the same room that this conference call is taking place. And there's a little bit of an interruption. I'm like, oh, the mayor's office is calling. I hope that's not a problem. And so there was chatter right before that call on, is this going to happen? But it, it, everyone was thumbs up. 
um, race, the race directors of these races, because these were all client events. None, they weren't our events. And all my clients were like, no, we're, we're going, we're going, you know, all of the agencies are a go. And literally on that call, Lisa, um, the mayor's office said, stand down. And so I'm on the call. I hear that. I see their jaws drop. And it's like, wow, did they just say we can't go? And it was a shock. I mean, this race had over a thousand people in it. And I watched them, you know, kind of think th their first reaction was, we'll get back to you. Nothing's firm. It's just conversation. And within a matter of two hours, it was, it was done. Um, and so what it was in the very beginning was, you know, uh, mayors and uh, police chiefs and heads of agencies that are responsible for signing permits all of a sudden just started getting cold feet. And in the beginning, it felt like an overreaction. And of course, there's all kinds of emotion attached to that. So we pulled the plug on everything. Uh, it got pulled on us. I mean, we didn't pull the plug, but it, it, everything collapsed. And we were left going, what is going on? So it wasn't a, a slow build and we were preparing and we had time to get all of the PPE and all these things ready. It was really just ripped out from underneath of us. Um, so those races um, immediately were stuck with no history of what do you do? And so each of them had to figure out what they were going to do about all of this registration and, you know, um, how to make people happy and how to recover from this. So that's how it, how it started for us. And obviously from there, um, it was easier to now start looking ahead and, and start talking with clients who were two weeks out, three weeks out, months out from their events and start to say, okay, what if, is this really happening? So, you know, it, it's an unnerving <laughs> feeling when I don't have answers for clients. I mean, they're looking for answers. I'm like, this is a new space for all of us. So as I sit here right now, looking back at that, um, we know how to operate in this space. I mean, that's, we spent the last how many months um, figuring that out. And as I sit here now, we're, we're approaching those races again. Uh, I'm talking to the St. Patrick's Day races right now. And we can get into a little bit of what does 2021 look like in a moment. But, you know, now I have so much material and um, suggestions and can help clients navigate through this. But back then there was, there was, what do you tell them? Right. And what were some of those, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, refunds, deferrals, um, you know, how do they, you know, that was, those were probably some of the issues that everyone had to deal with and then and then communicating that to the runners who were probably had the, the range of emotions from accepting and okay we get this we're all in this together to heck I want my money back and that right. seems like it's a that's a whole whole big wave to navigate. Yeah so let's talk about that because I think when you're only on one side of it um it, it you don't always understand how that all works. And yeah. clearly if you're an athlete who has parted with hard earned money um, even though we all sign waivers that say that races can hold on to your money, even if the race doesn't happen, you know, all those waivers have that, um, those clauses in it. It doesn't feel right when mass 
cancellation happened. So I, I can say that it was really difficult um, because races, when you're that close to going live, have spent a lot of money. And there are, um, you know, when you're hired as a timer to produce those races, we have overhead and, you know, expenses. And you just multiply that out with all of the different vendors who are supplying the race. Uh, a lot of invoices are still owed, um, in part, uh, in some cases, in full. So races have to figure out, well, what are we going to do? And so if you've ever been a part of a race as an athlete where you, it's canceled on you and you don't get a full refund, you know, it's a balance of trying to get everyone covered. Um, I am happy to say that the, the majority of our clients, including ourselves, we're in the camp of this can't be uh, a problem for participants. Um, we have to come out of this with participants thanking us, not hating us or not feeling like we could have done better. Um, I very quickly adopted that philosophy um, and took the approach that th we're in it for the long haul. We're not in it for um, a quick profit. We're in it to produce races at a quality level for years to come. And we see the benefits that racing brings to participants and to the community and to you know, organizations that come out and we're able to fund them uh, with profits and donations from athletes. It's such a win-win-win environment. Um, and it's all you know, based on healthy activity. Um, so why, why make it ugly? And um, if I take a hit this year financially, um, you know, I had to come to terms with that. And I think very quickly, a lot of our clients did as well. So now that you've made the decision, okay, um, let's make this not an issue for participants. Let's make it a win-win. That's, that's a, emotionally, that might sound like an easy decision, but logistically it's not easy. So now you have all of this money and you have to figure out, are you going to give it back? And if so, how? Or are you going to have it as a deferral and hold those credits? And how does that work? Um, one of the interesting things that happens when you're holding that big pot of money is it's in your bank account. So you go through a registration provider. You as the athlete sign up for the race. You pay the little fee. And, you know, we get paid the fee for the race. So that's in our bank account. And now suddenly you have to reverse the flow. And so it had registration companies trying to figure out how are we going to do this? It, and it basically it's a refunding. So we had to write huge checks back to the, um, you know, to the run signups and to the actives um, out there that are the registration platforms and refund our accounts so that when we did the credit card refund, there was money there to happen. And that's not easy to figure out. And you don't know how much to put back in because there's a variety of options that we wanted to give our athletes. And what we recommended to our clients was, you know, give, a, give a, some options. I think people like not being stuck with decisions made for them, if you can give them some options, we wanted to help them figure out how to navigate through that. And so 
our options basically came down to three. You can have your money back. And that literally was a credit card um, money returned. You could have a deferral. So, and, and the way we do deferral, since we have multiple races, we're not a one race shop. We don't want to give you a deferral for the same race because if your flexibility or if we give you flexibility and you're not tied to one of our races with those credits, then um, that's a better deal, right? So you may have had to drop out of the Hagerstown Sprint Triathlon, but next year that might not be a date that works for you, but the Luray Triathlon might work. So you now have credits to use for any of our branded races. Um, and so that's the deferral part. And then we even, you know, our staff said, I wonder if people would, would just be generous in giving their money as a gift. And so we made that an offer. And for any of you that are listening that were part of gifting us your entry fees on a very financially tough year, we thank you so much because the generosity that we saw from participants this year was amazing. It really was amazing. Um, so yeah, that navigating all of that is extremely tough. I know many clients, including myself, went into the negative on things to make all that happen. And we all adopted the same philosophy that we're not a one and done race. We want to be around for a long time. So that, that decision became easier the more you thought about your mission and, and why you exist. Right, I think building that um, yeah, reputation in the community, and uh, I think from a runner's perspective and an athlete's perspective, probably the the gratitude that athletes had for the flexibility, I think, hopefully, is reflected in the generosity of donating registration fees that end up, you know, for races that are canceled. So, um, and I I know that you now also have for registration for next year events if they're canceled, and you had this for this year's events that if they were canceled, that people would be able you committed ahead of time. That if they were be canceled, that runners would have the option to get a refund, which I think um, gives gives athletes that peace of mind. To, to I, I think we're all now in that limbo, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. Of do I sign up for this race that's going to be in March, and if I do, am I going to lose my money if it's canceled? And so I think that um, gives gives athletes a, a, a significant um, peace of mind. So so talk to us a little bit then about now where we are now and what you're tell. First of all. Let's talk about the races that you, you've done um, because you've done quite a few now and um, you've adapted and pivoted and modified the events and made a lot of logistical changes. So talk about what you've done and how it's worked because from my perspective, it was, it was great, but I know from behind the scenes, it was probably a lot of, a lot of logistics and figuring things out. So tell me what, what that's looked like and how that's um, helped you put on these successful events. Yeah, so... Yeah. When we had to transition and figure out what was possible for 2020, we got over the shock, you know, we, we were now looking forward and saying, what can we salvage and, and what is it going to take? It was clear that agencies like, um, you know, um, towns and um, police um, agencies that have to be involved were very skittish and I don't blame them. Um, it was clear that people weren't ready to make a decision, um, erring, erring on the side of super cautious was, was, you know, the status quo. And so 
some towns, cities um, still aren't giving permits to this day. Um, so it was easy to lock all that down. Um, we saw what happened to all of us with, you know, the quarantining and all that came with that. So racing was like, oh my gosh, it's not even a thought. We can't allow these things to happen. They're mass gathering events. I mean, it's, so how do you begin to get things spinning again? And so it became very clear to me that if you were in control over your course, where you didn't need permits and you didn't need police standing on corners and you could work with private um, landowners, um, that was the way to get things going again. And so we just started to explore, well, where do we have that? And at Racing Multisports, we have a couple locations that are very good to us. Um, and so Fort Ritchie is one of those locations where it has it all. We have an open lake. Uh, we have, you know, an enclosed property that we can uh, cycle and run on. And so probably back in April, late April, I figured out that Fort Ritchie could be that location. If we could keep a race all on the property, we would avoid all of those concerns and have full control. And we knew that we could produce a safe event. So convincing the agencies um, to give us permits, since that was difficult, we worked around that. So I crafted what became known as Superfest, um, the Super Sprints Triathlon and Duathlon at Fort Ritchie at the end of April. And it literally was sketched out on paper. And I said to the team, this is a just in case. If we need something like this, if we can't get back to racing, then this is something we should be able to do no matter what. Um, so that was important as a race organizer to have some options in my back pocket. Um, and keep in mind in April and May, we don't know how long this is gonna go. Um, and so we were hoping that races would happen we were still trying to sell registration in our traditional races in the hopes that the pandemic would go away and, and COVID would just somehow um, disappear or at least get under control so that we could get back out and do the normal stuff. So when that didn't happen and it kept getting worse, um, we made the Superfest at Fort Ritchie plan come to life. And in doing so, that was able to help other clients of ours think about racing can happen you know you just have to find the locations that are going to work with you and it really came down to learning who are the run friendly mayors who are the run friendly um executives who sit on boards and make decisions um and it it started to identify itself you know pennsylvania is a state that has had more races um, in our five state area that we operated in. And when I talk to the clients that we have up there, they say, oh yeah, you know, our mayor is a runner and he gets it. And, you know, so it's, it's, it really takes people that understand what's happening in an event to allow it to happen. And we can do it very safely. So that's really what we discovered was it's very location specific. And then you have to figure out how to abide by the mask wearing and social distancing.
So it's got to have some space. You have to be able to spread people out. If there's a gathering limit in that area, which pretty much is everywhere, um, then how do you only amass that many people at that single time? And the answers start to reveal themselves. So we're coming on to a Thanksgiving day and we have one client who is running their Thanksgiving day race half on at four o'clock on Wednesday and the other half on Thursday morning, the traditional time, both at the same location. And we're going to morph the, you know, two days of results together. Um, so that's a creative approach. And so they have doubled their capacity. Their area is allowing 300. And so they have 300 that are going to run on Thursday morning. They're going to have 300 to run on uh, Wednesday afternoon. Is this in Pennsylvania? So this one is in Winchester, Virginia. Oh, Virginia, okay. Because I know Mar yeah. so Maryland, Maryland now just went back this week to a gathering limit of 25. So I would assume that would mean for any Maryland races that that would take them out of contention in the immediate future. Is that, I mean, is that? Uh, so I missed that. What did you hear? Is Maryland, uh, from what I understand, Maryland's now gone back to 25, gathering limits of 25. Is that, I mean, that's what I just heard, was that we so, went back in Maryland. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know that yet. Um, so our mayor, um, Hogan, had a press conference two days ago, and he ratcheted us back and talked only about inside gathering. Okay, yeah. Oh, that, it's Montgomery. That, Montgomery County. Yeah. Ours is in Montgomery County. Right. That's why. That's our particular county. So. Right, right. And, and what I would share with listeners is, um, when you hear a press conference, it's not always all encompassing. So when he got off that press conference, um, people were calling me and saying, Hey, he didn't say anything about outside gathering. I said, well, listen, just because he didn't say it doesn't mean it's not in his written executive order. So we pulled that off his website and the executive order did not change for outside in Maryland. So right now it's still 250. Um, and so I would just share with anyone that's researching this kind of stuff in the areas that you're in, um, look for your governor's executive order on what's allowed and what's not. And look at the, look at the fine print, look at what's written. Because sometimes in, in um, press conferences, they might forget a detail, um, but the written is what we go by. The written is what we have as a file when we submit permits to show what is allowed and what's not allowed. So there's no misinterpreting anything. Um, so in Maryland right now, it's 250. In Virginia, it's a little um, nicer. They're allowed to go up to 300. Um, I think we jumped ahead just a little bit because we're focused, the question was focusing on, you know, how do we get races starting again? But that's it. it it's understanding what the executive order is allowing or not allowing, finding agencies that are going to work with you. And if you can't, finding properties that you don't need those agencies' permission. Um, and they're there's not many of those. I mean, you have to get creative and we can't have every race find every private property because um, it would just saturate those areas or, or those, those few locations. But right now, we've gone from almost no races to something. And what the industry needs is, is probably something, Lisa, that we need to talk about because it comes from every angle to get this spinning again. I've used the analogy that um, some might have seen before um, I've seen, you know, um, 
I don't know, performance artists try to spin plates on sticks, right? And they get the plate spinning and it's wobbly at first, but the faster they get that plate spinning, it's going. And now they can put up another stick and spin another plate on it. And then pretty soon, right, they have 10 plates on stage all spinning and all the hard work to get them spinning is done. They're just walking by and they'll give it a little tap and that plate will keep on spinning. Well, I look at the race industry as a bunch of plates that were spinning beautifully on their sticks for years, and they all crashed to the ground. And so now we need to get those plates spinning again. We meaning anyone who cares about racing. So how does that work? Um, and it starts with one little race. If you get a 50-person race off the ground, tell people about it. Promote that you did it. That's a plate that, got, that started spinning again. And that's going to encourage another race director to give it a try. And that's going to start, you know, spreading until the point where we come out of this year with, with some plate spinning. And that's happening. So I'm very encouraged that we're not leaving this year with all the plates crashed to the ground and nothing moving. We have, ra we have races that are happening. And that momentum will hopefully leap forward in the spring and just pick up momentum. So you mentioned something before. I mean, you touched on a lot of um, factors that I don't think in just maybe a runner or an athlete from the outside may understand the importance of the, the, the you know, the permitting bodies, the, the executive orders. When runners and athletes, you know, when I say runners, I mean triathletes and cyclists and, and swimmers are looking at events later this year into next year, what are some factors you think that we can look at to determine is this a race? that is likely to, to take place. One you mentioned is like, where is it taking place? Is it taking place where permits need to be issued? Is it on private property? But what are some other, I mean, I personally will look at, you know, is there a COVID protocol listed on the website? Is there, is there an acknowledgement there is, are, right. that this is happening? Are there, are there, you know, limitations on participants and registration? What, what would you tell people to look at to determine the likelihood, you know, obviously, anything can change but what what makes it right. more likely to, to take place yeah so the great thing for your listeners as participants in these events is they don't have to worry about the back end right so that's my job and that's what i do and work hard for you as the runner to figure out so um if you see a race listed here are the things as a participant that you should be looking for to to decide is this race right for me? And by the way, I would, I would lead off first with, if you're a participant and you like running and you like events, get out there. Make some you know, um, decisions to support any event, any event that's happening, as long as the checklist that I'm about to give you makes you feel comfortable. Um, the, the problem of sitting back and waiting for someone else to do it too many people are doing that right now. I am shocked, Lisa, at, at how scared we are as a nation. I am shocked. Um, I'm someone who probably is a little bit more of a risk taker, but not at the expense of my health. Um, I will wear a mask. I will follow every single piece of what's asked of me, even if I don't think it's helping as much as we were told that it is. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is I want things to get back. And if the fast path to get back to what we like and enjoy 
is a small sacrifice of wearing a mask and doing these things and standing six feet apart from people and not having certain um, benefits at races that we've all taken for granted, like post-food, post-race food. We can get into some of this in a moment, but, you know, just do your part to move the, the, the nation forward. And in the, in, the, in the world of racing, it's attend races. Get out there and attend them. They don't have to be grand. They don't have to be the Ironman. They don't have to be the marathon. They don't have to be big city, but attend them because we have to prove to the agencies that are telling us no right now that this can be done safely. And I'll tell you, the most important thing is I will have done my part when you come to a racing multi-sport race to be ready for you. And I will have everything uh, lined up and following all the executive orders and have all of the um, personal protective equipment for you and for us that is required, right? But none of that works if athletes come without masks, if athletes come and don't follow the instructions, if athletes don't read the guides. I tell you, as a race director, we spend so much time on athlete guides. And when we get questions from athletes where they clearly haven't read the guide, you know, that's a little bit of a slap in the face because we've worked so hard to make the communication so easy for you. Um, but I get it. I get that people are busy, but now is not a time to use that excuse. You need to read the information and follow it. So the magic in moving forward is going to be race directors doing their diligence and producing quality, safe events that might have a few bells and whistles missing right now because we can't do it. Athletes need to attend. Um, you know, get out there and show that you want to be out there and let's show these, these departments and cities that it can be done. So we need to get the plates spinning. So we need to get the plates spinning. We need the race directors putting on the races within the confines of the restrictions that we have. And we need people attending the races. Um, so that's what it sounds like is going to get those, that momentum moving again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but clearly not every race is done right. And I'll be the first to admit it. Um, one of the challenges having clients, and I, this might be known, but it has to be stated. When racing multi-sports is hired to help a race, we don't always have a lot of say. Um, we sometimes look at our clients and say, we need to tell them you know, that they should do something different. We try, they don't always listen. So just because we're involved doesn't guarantee that everything is done. So I've seen some stuff that needs to get better in some areas. Um, we're not perfect either. We're, we're constantly learning, but it's about the effort and about making sure that you got the big things uh, handled. Um, so when you're shopping races, it's going to be important to look for a couple key things. You mentioned the COVID plan. If they don't have a COVID plan that you can print out and read, and it's not covering ways that it's protecting you, then that's probably not a race that you want to do. Uh, COVID plans almost now in, are in every permit that I've turned in are required. So prior to COVID, we would turn in a, a plan, a safety plan. And that talks about how um, we're going to keep people safe, how we're going to keep the community safe as we navigate on open roads and that sort of thing. In addition to that plan, we now have to have a COVID plan that speaks specifically to the things that we're going to do to control 
the spread of COVID. And so that should be transparent to the participant. They should be able to see that COVID plan. The other thing is um, they should be able to make phone calls or emails to that organization. Right now is, you know, if you're not, if you're putting on races and you don't have time to take people's calls or emails, which I like to do no matter any time, you know, it doesn't take a pandemic to get serious about that. Um, that's a red flag too. You know, do they have time to talk to you? Are they getting back to you? Um, ask probing questions. If you think that something is missing as race directors, we may have missed something that's important to you. And your questions help us to realize whether we have everything nailed down. But you can get a gauge from the race management company that's putting on the event or the YMCA or whatever organization is putting on the event if they are organized and are taking care of you. So those are some important things uh, to be looking for. Here are some things that you're going to see, though, that might be a little bit disappointing. But again, I say don't let it stop you. And that is we can't give the food like we've done in the past. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, there, first of all, the health department should always be involved with races that offer food, um, but health departments are having a hard time right now proving that part if you're offering food uh, because of all of the touching that goes into play. So what we have learned is you can still do aid stations, but you can't have open cup you can't have people's hands mixing Gatorade inside those coolers. Um, but what you can do is buy little bottles of water, whether they're chilled or not, depending on what the athlete needs on that day, and have those bottles sitting out on tables. And it's a self-serve kind of deal. Um, so aid stations can happen if we're talking just water and if it's an important event and they have the money, they could even buy little Gatorade bottles. But now you're opening up a bottle yourself. Um, obviously, you want to discard that the way the race is asking you to. Don't litter the course with all that stuff. But um, so that goes away. Sometimes award ceremonies are tough to do um, for gathering reasons. And so some races are mailing awards or not even having awards. Um, and, you know, we, we thought it would be important to bring awards back for our October duathlon, and I thought it went pretty well. Um, so those are some things that you're going to have to maybe give up right now that you typically would, in, would enjoy. And in some ways, I hear people, you know, pick races based on the post-race spread. So that might be a thing that you have to wait a little bit on. But get out there and support the events that are happening so we can get this momentum going is really the strong message and don't have such a focus on the fringe focus on the main reason you're there for your health getting to a finish line accomplishing the goals um you know your health goals and your racing goals i mean that really should be the focus right now yeah do you do you based on what you've kind of the changes you've made already in your races do you foresee any of these changes you know lasting well into the future like you know maybe People don't need an expo or don't need a packet pickup. Like, do, do you foresee anything kind of carrying on where we look, you know, in five years and say, oh, remember pre-COVID where we used to have a packet pickup and we don't have that anymore? Do you foresee any like permanent changes? No. So I'm an optimist. Okay. So let's make sure your, your listening audience understands this. I am. So someone coined the term our new normal and I got sick to my stomach. 
and I don't mean to offend anyone that likes that term, okay? New normal. When I hear the word new or the term new normal, to me, that's someone that's giving up. Now, that might not be the way you view it, and I respect everyone's view. I'm just telling you that Ken Racine, when I hear the word new normal, it drives me crazy because I don't want to give one ounce of power to this COVID disease, okay? It's already gripping us, but I don't want it to grip us forever. Um, I'm already learning how to live with it. And pretty soon, I believe in 2021, not only will we continue to live with it, but we'll learn how to get things back that right now don't seem possible. So to ask a guy like me, do you think anything is permanently lost? I can't even fathom agreeing to that or, or saying that I believe that. So expos and post-race food, there's ways to do it. We just weren't prepared to do it in 2020 because we never, got, we never had to face this. Um, so we'll figure it out. Um, and, I, you know, I can't predict. If I could predict, gosh, I'd be um, a pretty wealthy guy if I could predict things like that. But um, I can't predict when all of that will be back. It'll come in, in pieces, right? Um, so we'll take every little win as we can and learn how to do it. When I was, when it was March and April, I had a low moment. I, I really did. I had a moment of, is this all over? And I spent 48 hours basically, you know, sheltered, um, not wanting to talk to my family. I had a low moment and I shook it off. And the moment I did, opportunity started opening up again right? Because your mind is so powerful. If you shut your mind off and you accept your, your current situation um, and, and don't look beyond it, it can be gripping and crippling. So I had 48 hours of that. I shook it off and I haven't looked back since. And we have turned an ugly year into something. And now we're going to turn 2021 into something more. And it's just going to keep building. So Thank you for that question because a lot of people want to know, you know, is this per are some of these things permanent? And I cannot accept that. I love that. And I think that's um, such a good, that, that's part of why you're so successful and why you've been able to do what you've been able to do. And interestingly enough, Lee had a, a call with our coaching clients last night and we had a guest speaker who's a psychologist on about um, managing through the stress and of the pandemic and all of the changes we're going through. And um, she had talked first about um, accepting the difficult feelings and sitting with them for a little bit, but then moving on from them. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. And, you know, she talked about the fear brain. And when we're stuck in that, um, you know, that, that, that dwelling on it, um, we can't get out of the fear brain. But once we, um, you know, get past it, we can let go of the fear brain and we can move on. And that's, it's just, uh, you know, when you talked about that, it just reminded me of what we talked about last night. And you sat with it for 48 hours and you figured out, you know, what are we going to do in, in the constraints and, you know, in the restrictions that we have by the permitting agencies. And um, I think that's, that's a great, great perspective. And just as a side note, have, uh, we haven't heard of any, but have you heard of any outbreaks or any spread of COVID that have happened at the races that have been happening across the country through your race director, you know, networks? Have you heard of any? any spread community no and, you know that's really an important question too because um if you're if you're like me i am looking for all of that 
I want to hear the stories, good or bad, that are happening out there. And I haven't heard a single story trying to connect COVID with the gathering of racing events. Uh, one of the things that we're doing to prevent that possibility is just the creative social distancing and staggered start times and all of that. So I think that's part of the solution um, and why we're having success with races. So no, I haven't heard a thing. And, you know, when we're out there, the feeling I get, Lisa, when I'm out there with athletes, there's a, there's a voice in my head that just keeps ringing and it says, this feels so right. Okay. I, I, you know, when you're doing something that you enjoy, that's, you know, you can, you can justify it because you enjoy it, but it's beyond that for me, Lisa. It feels so right to have people doing athletic things outside. Um, and why shouldn't we be doing this? The, the very thing we just talked about, the mental health of this and how much people have been scared into hiding and all of this, this one of the solutions is physical activity and being outside. And so the irony for me is we can't even, back in March, April, you know, May, we couldn't even provide that. So it just spun into a deep hole. And for those of us that were able to shake it off, I mean, I've lost weight through the pandemic. Uh, for one, I'm not as busy as I should be. <laughs> so I have that going for me. Um, I'd much rather do less exercising, you know, and have a better balance <laughs> with more work. But the point is, um, I think that helped me a tremendous amount to just focus on my, my fitness and my health. Um, and so another strong reason to get racing back. And goals, goals, having goals, I think for us as athletes and the runners that we coach, just to have those goals, to be able to put them on. And while virtual races seem to be a, you know, a, a good standby for a little bit when we couldn't do anything, I think it's hard for people to really, um, get excited about that. And, and to your point of, um, you know, feeling right when I was, can speak personally to when I was at the Hagerstown Duathlon, um, I think all of the athletes were so grateful for the opportunity that everybody, I, I came back and I said, I was so impressed. You know, you had a staggered start where um, athletes started every, was it 30 seconds? I, heard, I forget exactly what it was, but we had to line up by our bib number to be called up to the start line where we took off our bib and everybody got in line in the right order, giving each other their, their, their personal space, you know, the social distance and, and every, it moved so smoothly. And I thought, look at all of those athletes who cooperated and everybody wore a mask and everybody was respectful. And I think the, the gratitude that everybody felt that it did, it felt like such, it was such a high when we finished that race that we did this, we did this safely and everybody was so grateful for that opportunity. So I was actually just going to close and we're grateful for your time. And we spent um, a good amount of time talking about moving forward. And I think for me, this gives me a lot of hope in your positivity. And I was going to just close with, um, you know, we've interviewed Dave McGilvery, who's the race director of the Boston Marathon and also owns a, a race management company. And he said he's not a race director. His quote is that now I tell people that I help raise the level of self-confidence and self-esteem in tens of thousands of people in America. And that's what you do is you raise the, the level of self-confidence and self-esteem 
in in people. It's not just it's just not just an event. It's it's that opportunity to achieve a goal, um, to get out and be together. And like you said, the physical activity that we all really need at this time. So, I am extremely grateful to you for all of the work that I know goes on in the background. I, I don't think we all appreciate how much logistics and how much work goes on. And you wouldn't know when you come to one of your events because they run so smoothly. And um, I, I appreciate your positive attitude and I'm hoping that we move forward. And I will say that Racing Multisport has its 2021 schedule up and registration is open. And you do have a policy of refunds if, if races have to be canceled. So I would encourage runners from all over to make sure to check out your, your race schedule. And um, I think your point is very important that we need to support the industry so that we can, we can continue uh, having, having these opportunities into the future and get those plates spinning so that the momentum can, can get going. Well, thank you, Lisa, for the opportunity. And I'm open for discussion uh, beyond this podcast if anyone wants to talk further about all of this. Um, I really feel like we need to work together more than ever, race director to race director, um, athletes and race directors, agencies and race directors. It's really gonna take everyone who is involved to have lots of discussion and share creativity. And that's already happening. Um, it's amazing how much a lot of the network that I'm involved in has come together and we share ideas and never before has it been more important. So all of that uh, needs to keep going. Well, thank you so much, Ken. Really appreciate your time. I am getting ready to sign up for my races for 2021. So I'm looking forward to seeing you and um, thank you for all that you do to support our, our local running community. Awesome. Well, we'll see you in 2021. All right. Take care, Ken. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.